KRCL, Salt Lake City. I am Nick Burns. This is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, a show for community builders, a show for punk rock farmers, and always a show for DIY creatives. Thank you for plugging in with our own community, your community, with me tonight. And tonight on the show, a guest that I love chatting with, Professor Amos Giora from the law school up at the U. He's back joining us later on the show tonight to talk about his new initiative to study what he calls ecosystems of abuse. And I'm fascinated by that term. We think of ecosystems as, you know, the pine trees and the rabbits and everybody all getting along. But he's thinking of an ecosystem that allows abuse. And an example might be, gosh, people standing by while other people send folks to the gas chamber uh, in Nazi Germany. So his goals, quote, hold enablers and bystanders accountable, work with legislators around the world on criminalizing bystanders and enablers, and engage in a widespread education project on all levels on the harm caused by enablers and bystanders. I think it's a fascinating project. It's sort of something to think about ethically as well as legally, as well as morally. And in his work, he now has seven students joining him on this project. And he'll join us later on the hour to talk about that, as well as ways I think we want to ask about what can we each do in our own lives. And I think that's important. So, Laura Jones, we should jump into rallies and resources. Yeah, and I, I just want to say the, the notion of, it, of studying this ecosystem of abuse then hopefully allows us to prevent harm in the future. I think that's another important direction of his work. So excited to have him back. Got his Clash song queued up for him and everything. Rallies and resources you can find at krcl.org under the Community Affairs tab. And today is the last day to apply as a volunteer with the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. Single tickets go on sale tomorrow. Don't forget to check sundance.org for their COVID protocols. It's a mix of in-person and hybrid and uh, we did our preview show last night. Looking forward to some more conversations in the coming weeks ahead about film and how it can jumpstart um, broader conversations. Tomorrow night I'm going to have a conversation about Downwinders because of a, a film that's premiering and screening at Slamdance, the yeah. Sundance alternative that's been exactly. around for decades now. Let's see. Uh, Friday is the last day to submit public comment on UDOT's proposed expansion of I-15 from Farmington to Salt Lake City. Talk about another <coughs> d disaster. <laughs> Pardon my punditry. Well, and this is um, the deadline for comment for this phase of this right. project. This project's coming. And so uh, it's an environmental impact statement that they're looking for comment on. And the public input can shape this project. It's going to happen. How do you want it to happen? I've actually, I've actually commented twice, although Have they you? probably know it's the same person <laughs> and they probably put it in the poop can because oh. it was from me. But hey, um, yeah, I don't know if we need somewhere between 20 and 23 lanes of I-15 when mm. we could buy an awful lot of uh, green electric buses for that kind of money. But there's a culture shift as mm -hmm. much as a concrete shift yeah. that we need to do. Well, coming up in Rallies and Resources, we have some special guests on a project that you can now witness, experience if you're on a bus or a tracks in Salt Lake Valley. It's in search of blue sky. We have an artist, an atmospheric scientist, and a poet to join us shortly. And we have a poet in this round of Rallies and Resources as we talk about the rally to save our great Salt Lake. And joining us now in the studio, we have poet Ashley Finley. How you doing? Hey, Laura. Hey, Nick. It's so good to be here. Oh, thank you. Did you bring some poetry? I did. Okay, we're going to get some 
some of that tonight. Good, good. Sure, <laughs> between you and Lindsay. And then also we have with us historian and founding member of Save Our Great Salt Lake, Nate Housley. Hey, Nate, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. All right. So, Nick, we've got studies about studies about studies. Uh. Meanwhile, the Great Salt Lake keeps dropping. So on Saturday, 12 to 3 at the Capitol, um, Save Our Great Salt Lake. And how many other organizations, Nate, are, are joining together to put on this rally? We've got about, uh, I, I actually haven't counted, we've got about 15, 18 uh, different organizations wow. that have partnered with us to help uh, pull this off and help make sure that we got a really big, good event. I, I appreciate the optimism to save our Great Salt Lake. Um, so much of the reporting, you know, looking at the, the terminal lakes in California that have died and these emergency measures trying to save them with plowing and seeding and this, that, and the other but your approach here is, why don't we save it? Why don't we, and I guess, Ashley, this refers to your day job, but why don't we save it? Why don't we give it a rebirth? It, it's difficult, right? It's going to take money. But I appreciate that seems to be your direction rather than <laughs> another study. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have had studies. We know what the problem is. The problem is uh, overconsumption. And that's uh, the, the long and the short of it. And it, it is going to take money. And, it, you know, we are, regardless of, of whatever comes next, you know, um, we, we have been using too much water for too long. And we need policy. We also need a cultural shift, kind of like what you uh, mentioned with I-15, is we're, we're, at a, we're at a juncture here where, in terms of a lot of resources, in terms of our relationship with, um, you know, we th what we think of as the natural world is we, we need to start uh, repairing that relationship across the board. And, and that's that's our goal. We need the short term fixes and changes. But, um, yeah, we're 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 heading into a uh, a new way of life, a new way of thinking, hopefully. And, so. and if you really put it in a bigger picture, I mean, white folks only showed up here. 150, 160, 175 years ago, the modern Salt Lake Valley is probably, what, 40 years old, 50 years old, the big massive growth. And now everyone just seems to think this is inevitable and this is the way it must be. Like I-15 expansion. <laughs> oh, yeah, let me go back to that. But I mean, there's just this conception that there's an inevitability to an ongoing sameness. Mm -hmm. And that's what's kind of frightening, it seems, that, that thinking outside the box happens in other areas. I mean, I have a really cool cell phone in my pocket. I didn't have that when I was a kid. Mm. Why can't we change in other ways? So save our great Salt Lake. I like it. Ashley, your day job, and thank you. You've been on the show many times, I know. Your day job, Adula, you're helping, you know, bring new little babies into the world. Yep. <laughs> and are, do you conceptualize this save our great Salt Lake the same way? Are we birthing a new lake somehow? Yeah, I think Overall and generally, um, it's hard for me to separate my work uh. um, as a birth worker and birth keeper from my passion as like an environmentalist, right? Because it's all life. And not only is it all life, it all deserves to thrive. Um, and so for me, it's really important to bring that perspective I think from my own, you know, personal praxis to the rally and to the work around um, environmental justice, um, because it's our it's our 
it's our relative, right? The lake is not just the lake. We're related to the lake and we're related to the ecosystem of the lake. And so um, we can't abuse it. You're also a poet, have been on yeah. the show many times sharing your poetry. And I was hoping <laughs> that you brought something to share with us. I did. Why don't you pull that out? Yeah. You're going to be speaking. I'm guessing you'll share some poetry as well at the rally on Saturday. Maybe. Noon to three at the Utah <laughs> Capitol. Okay. <laughs> So I actually wrote this piece at the Great Salt Lake um, for the Balance the Biome Rights of Nature um, Summit. And so um, we had this really amazing opportunity to go to the lake as a group and kind of spend time with her and spend time there. Um, I'd recently lost my mother. And so um, in our relationship, me bringing my mom out to Salt Lake the Great Salt Lake itself was um, kind of really important in our relationship and in my relationship to her as a caretaker. So this is what came. <laughs> um, when mommy died, she went with the sunset. Beyond the mountains in the west, her last breath, the last golden light of the day, and then it was dark. I imagine on her way to the next realm, she must have made a stop at the lake they call the Great One, one of the seven wonders of the world, a place I had wanted to show her but never did. And now, here I am. A month and a half after her initiation as an ancestor, I can feel her here. In the softness of the wind against my face, I hear her voice. I see it now. It is wonderful, majestic even. Love it, Ashley. Love it deeply. And I do love it because I love my mother and she was here. Just as I love the mountains and the ocean and the bayous and the fields and the rain and the sunlight because she was there too. And she is there and here even now. Wonderful, majestic even. Very nice. Ashley Finley, <laughs> poet, birth keeper, speaker at the rally on Saturday, Rally to Save the Great Salt Lake, noon to three at the Utah Capitol. Just a taste of maybe what you're in for from <laughs> Ashley. What else can folks expect on Saturday, Nate? Oh, we've got a great lineup of, of speakers. We're going to be, I mean, we have Ashley, we have, um, you know, other writers and poets uh, speaking, as well as policy experts, um, as well as people who... Uh, have been doing other types of work. Um, so we're, we're gonna get a real taste of how this issue impacts the entire community. We've we've had one small uh, portion of the community represented up until now, and that's, mm -hmm. and that's part of the problem, so. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, we've, for a while, we have just kind of collectively, and, and I'm including myself in this as well, but we've collectively, you know, trusted the, the policymakers, the people who are in power, to make these decisions on our behalf you know they've said for a while hey this is under this is under control we've got this handled and and the, you know the truth is is we should have been working on this 20 or 30 years mm. ago and now it's it, we're in an urgent situation this is an emergency and we need to change that relationship of of power with our policymakers, and not just cater to one small uh, uh, portion of people who consume water, not just cater to industry and to feed the growth machine, but just to make sure 
that water is being um, you know, used equitably, fairly, and responsibly. Folks encouraged to bring their own signs for the rally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, please bring a sign. Please let us know how, you know, sh- show up with a sign and, and let people know how this issue impacts you. If you want to carry a sign, but um, you have not made one or don't have time to make one or f- for whatever reason, we had a great art build on Saturday with some really good artists who, um, you know, designed some really great banners and people uh, from the community showed up to paint those banners and they look fantastic. So we're going to have those there as well. So you, you mentioned 15, 16, 18 groups engaged to be there at noon on Saturday. Any of our elected officials to be there? Uh, I don't believe we have any hmm. elected offi- officials um who are going to be directly involved in the rally. We, we do have some, uh, some support uh, from some elected officials. Okay, just I don't know if they've officially signed on, but yeah. People can uh, attend on Saturday and find out, or yeah. perhaps you know, text or email your elected official and ask them to join you. Again, yeah. what time and when, where, and a website where folks can get details. It starts at noon this Saturday um, and is going to be up at the Capitol building in Salt Lake City. Details are at SaveOurGreatSaltLake.org. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. Ashley Finley and also Nate Housley, historian and founding member of Save Our Great Salt Lake. Thank you so much for stopping by and giving us a preview. Love the poetry as always, Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) In Search of Blue Sky, coming up next. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Inviting you to tune into KRCL weeknights at 7 for Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report, an independent global news hour reporting headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. That's Democracy Now!, weeknights at 7, right here on KRCL. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event, a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. KRCL's Music Meets Movies returns to Brewies on Thursday, January 12th. We'll watch a documentary called The Glamour and the Squalor about Seattle's most legendary radio DJ. Pardon the interruption to your broadcast. My name is Marco Collins, and I'm here to announce the end of bad radio on this frequency. It suddenly felt like Seattle was on the map in a way that it hadn't been before, and Marco was that megaphone. Marco jumped out of the radio and made you take notice. He was kind of a rock star himself. He was the on-off switch for your career. Bands that come to mind that Marco broke. Weezer. President of the United States. In the studio with me is Beck. He was early on electronic music. I have the prodigy up next. Hi, we are from Daft Punk. Hi, this is Tom from the Chemical Brothers. Marco wasn't scared to put his weight behind a track that he believed in. Breaking the law! Breaking the law! He's playing music that we're not allowed to hear. you got to be willing to pioneer. And that's the story of Marco Collins. That's KRCL's Music Meets Movies, January 12th at Bruvies. Tickets at the door at 6.30, The Glamour and the Squalor at 7.30. More info at krcl.org. Going to be a fun time at Bruvies tomorrow. Come on down and, of course, wear that T-shirt. It's two for one, Nick Burns. Oh. All right, it's, it's time to wrap our rallies and resources with another art and environment project, Nick. 
Yeah, In Search of Blue Sky. Uh, this is a public artwork, a temporary, a temporary staging, if you will, public artwork combining art, combining atmospheric scientists or science, science and also poetry. Pretty cool. So, Wendy Wisher, I guess I would bring you in first as the artist. Tell me about doing collaborative art. In our, in our culture, in Western culture, we so often think of art as sort of a lone project. You know, you're in your studio, but this isn't that. I've been interested for quite some time in collaborating with scientists and engineers. I often refer to my work as translating data into personal meaning. I really believe that art has the capacity to communicate with people and communicate beyond just visuals of data, but help people understand why it's important to them, why they should care, what it means. I mean, the stereotype, of course, is that art is just emotion, you know, that little picture of the puppies playing cards makes me feel good, or the velvet Elvis painting. You're talking about art in a very different concept, a very different concept of art, I think. Well, it still is all around emotion, yeah, and I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. using the emotion to help people be curious and understand issues and understand why it's important, how it affects them, at the same time as still being aesthetically pleasing. I think it can be a little bit of everything. Good point. And so now you've got this project, In Search of Blue Sky, working with others, and we'll talk with those folks here in a sec. But how did this get going? How'd you get this going? Well, several years ago, John Lynn had approached me after the sensors were put on top of the tracks and he wanted to bring this about, do something to even thank riders for it. And it just took a few years for the opportunity to arise. And it, we received a grant for the Wasatch Observatory and using the data, which also one of the stipulations was to include interdisciplinary researchers within it. Okay. And it seemed the right time and it just kind of came together. And this is, if I understand correctly, sort of live time art. I mean, there's art when you ride on the bus and like you say, aesthetically pleasing, etc. But there's also links. You could like call it up on your phone and you could possibly find out the air pollution you're riding in at riding that very through. minute. Yeah. <laughs> Chewing on, right? Oh. So, John Lynn, bring you in the, the science side of this. Yeah. Tell me about you being involved. Yeah, well, as Wendy said, uh, this, this conversation started in the museum cafe uh, several years ago. And uh, my thought is, you know, I've worked for years in the scientific field, uh, communicating with, you know, fellow techie people like me. But that's a very limited crowd. The kind of work we do with air quality impacts everyone. And didn't Dr. Daniel Mendoza work on this earlier in Absolutely. terms of getting those monitors on the buses, on the yeah, tracks? Yeah, yeah. So Daniel, of course, is a valued colleague of mine in atmospheric sciences. He, along with me, several others, um, worked together on this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's really a team effort, not me by just me by any means. Yeah, but but really we wanted to engage the public and sometimes the technical, you know, showing lots of graphs is not the way to do yeah. it. The <laughs> but data artwork, can be really dry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you mentioned emotions. Really, that that's a great way to engage people, and art has that magic about it. So here's a project. We've got sensors on buses, sensors on trains. We've got an art project. If if someone you know does the QR code or clicks the link or whatever with their phone or or iPad or whatever on the on on the bus or train, what do they get? Yeah, what will they learn? This, this beautiful map that changes by the minute, pretty much. Uh, the different colors indicate the different levels of pollution. Um, it shows the way the pollution data is collected. 
Uh, you could have fixed sites. You could have the tracks trains. You can also have electric buses collecting data. Um, so these these data points move through the valley. Uh, they flicker in terms of color. So oh, cool. you know, today it's pretty much all blue because <laughs> of the storm, you know. But on other days, as we know, it can turn red. And again, live time. So somebody could check this out riding the bus home, and then they would know, gee, here's how crappy or not the air is in my neighborhood. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the, the beauty of these mobile measurements. They, they, they can go different places in the valley. In the case of the buses, they, they go through real neighborhoods. Well, I'd certainly rather see what you all got on the bus than like another advertisement for XYZ, but we don't, we don't want to go there. Um, Lindsay Webb, the poetry side of this, we're talking about beautiful maps. We're mm -hmm. talking about data visualization with colors and ebbs and flows. I can imagine sort of colored clouds representing pollution, and yet we've got poetry happening too. Yeah, so part of Professor Wisher's vision for this was simple visuals with a simple phrase that could sort of spark curiosity. Um, and so I sort of came in a little bit late to this project to contribute some of those simple phrases that hopefully do that. You have exact, can you give us examples? Yeah, yes, a little taste. Do. Please. Um, one of them we were just talking about before coming in. I put the definition for the word exhaust as a verb to drain someone of their physical or mental resources. Of course, a little bit of play on words as exhaust is the problem that we're dealing with, but also that sense of um, feeling weighed down by um, in an emotional sense, in an aesthetic sense, in a, in a literal physical sense by the pollution. And for some folks with lung issues, literally the mm -hmm. exhaust makes you exhausted. Right, exactly. And, you know, even deadly. Mm -hmm. So these phrases, this, these poetic turns of words, do those evolve with the colors on the map? And do they change and evolve as well as one looks at this and engages the art? No, they're they're set because the signs are set. So they're okay. they're not electronic signs. They're printed signs. The signs there's different ones that some are on the outside of the buses, and the ones that are inside the tracks cars um, have another t kind of turn where they thank riders for contributing to clean air. Um, we're always telling people, you know, you should take public transportation, and rarely do we thank people for the contributions that they do make. Uh, we also have um, the campaign is both in Spanish and in English, and that was Lindsay's suggestion to have it both in Spanish and English. And our website, the ecoart.website, um, is in both Spanish and English. And through that, it's kind of an easy-to-understand introduction to the atmospheric website that then shows the real-time data changing. And it shows pictures of what the sensors look like. So it was kind of an in, and the website will continue after the signs are no longer running. But we, I really wanted the phrases and the poetry to kind of spark something else, to spark a conversation. And for us to really think about how the air that we breathe, we're at the bottom of the atmosphere. And thinking, there's one that says, I was thinking about the air around my feet. Um, and one that Lindsay came up with that was beautiful is take a deep breath. There's something between us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that these are things that we just wanted to also find common ground. We all want blue sky and clean air. 
And while I know that not all blue sky represents clean air and not all non-blue skies represent unclean air, it's also about common ground and about bringing us together and bringing us together in the different communities because I believe at that's the place that we start to find solutions. It's not like everybody isn't breathing the same bowl of atmosphere here in the valley, it's right? It's chewy some days. This is another one of my favorites oh. that I found on the website, Nick. Air is pulled down by gravity like everything else. Good point. Something to think about. Is that? I, I think that's really, you know, that, that clever turn of phrase is w what gives that moment of pause to someone as they in encounter it. Yeah, that's the intention, to think about it. Uh, hopefully then they go to the website. Hopefully that inspires them to go to the data website. Another one, the surface of the planet is at the bottom of the sea we call the sky. Hmm. Ooh, excellent work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm giving you your, your snaps right now, okay? <laughs> Thank you. And this, even the notion of you, you get on the train, the tracks, or you get on the bus, and there's a sign that says thank you for riding the bus. I mean, that just seems revolutionary to me. In my mind, regardless of whatever circumstance is leading you to take public transportation, you're still contributing to a positive aspect for the community. And that's where I think the thanks becomes really important. I like this collaboration. I want to go back to the atmospheric scientist. Let's swing that microphone back over to our guest, John Lynn. And John, it's got to be rewarding to have the data and the art come together and have a broader conversation in the community, get people talking about those things that you are working on in the data every day and have it hopefully penetrate our sometimes thick skulls out here. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I, I, I heard the word thanks, and I just want to take the opportunity to thank UTA, actually, yeah. for hosting the sensors since 2015. And it's really... That's a lot of data. It's a lot of data. And the hope is this partnership continues for the foresee foreseeable future. So, mm -hmm. so that website with all the data, um, the flickering lights should continue for, for mm -hmm. quite a while. So anything yeah, the community should maybe bookmark that on their phones <laughs> or something. Anything magical yeah. you are learning by now seven, eight years of data? Yeah, all sorts of stuff to hotspots of pollution oh, to, yeah? you know, um, are to you seeing trends from, from, from day to day to season to season. That kind of thing. Daniel, I remember in the past when he's come on the show and talked about the data, it was initially confirming what was suspected that it is uh, disproportionately affecting people on the west side where industry and um, uh, transportation and, and train tracks and things are, are consolidated. Yeah, there's, there's that aspect as well. But um, also somewhat kind of interesting uh, patterns. Uh, if we talk about ozone, which is the main... Um, summertime pollutant it's gaseous it's it's kind of invisible so a lot of people aren't aware of it but it's it's real and it's affecting our health a lot of times that's higher in higher elevations mm -hmm. so a flip pattern from mm. fine particulate matter which is what i'm sure daniel was talking yeah. about so the ozone can actually be higher higher up higher so up where <laughs> and in the summer often so it's more affluent communities yeah, so yeah i was gonna say the richer yeah. people get it in the summer oh we do, ha we do have one sign that refers to that. It says some skies are bluer than others. <laughs> oh. So we even there. address the inequity. Do, do you have any ability to help or determine which signs or which poetry go on buses that are which routes or which areas? Well, we know that the signs and the tracks are on the red and green line. And the buses primarily are running through the downtown area, up through the university, potentially out to the airport, through Sugar House. It's kind of the central area. But I didn't 
get to choose uh, where you know which bus routes and buses I think change their route depending on. Okay, the day. UTA, release the signs. Because that them would, go I mean, everywhere. that would be intriguing. <laughs> you could, you could aim poetry at different audiences with more specific messages if you wanted to raise awareness about class differences or pollution differences in different parts of the valley. That's the next phase. No, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, is this is temporary public artwork, so the time frame that the art runs, and then what's next? Well, the website will stay up, and of course the Atmospheric website that's been up for years will continue to stay up. What's really interesting for me is we'll be able to see how many visits that Atmospheric website got before this project, during the project, and after, Mm. which is very hard to kind of get that data on how many people were affected by it with artwork alone. So this is just such a great project for me, experimental in some ways, and the ability to see if there are effects and what those effects might be. Well, Wendy, thank you so much Pretty for cool. getting the group together and bringing well, in Lindsay you. and John with you. Check tonight's show notes for links to ecoart.website as well as John Lynn, what's the name of the of the lab that you have up there? Atmospheric Sciences. Uh, it's a departmental effort, but the, uh-huh. the, the website is hosted by Meso West. Meso West. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And uh, please come back and report on the end with that data that you're collecting about whether or not it was effective. Sound yeah. good, Wendy? Thank you so much for right. having us. And how long is this up? Public It'll run art? through the month of January. Excellent. Oh, so into the legislative session. So yeah. really interesting to mm-hmm. track the number of art enjoyers. Any hashtag no. you want people to use if they share the sign? EcoArt, Utah, Air Quality. It's all good. All good. Thank you to the three of you. Well, as we totally encounter... Cool. The air quality in the winter, and as we encounter the bystander effect, this song gets us to our next guest. Please. He always requests it, so how can I say now? It's The Clash. Should I stay or should I go? KRCL. You like that, Nick? I love it. It's The Clash on KRCL. Welcome to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Rude Awakening with Liz at 8, Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30, and then your brand new day coming around again at uh, 6 a.m., and I believe Shell Yeah sitting in for John Florence tomorrow. You can check out the last two weeks of any show, including Radioactive. Under the Programs tab, there's a KRCL Listen on Demand button. Nick Burns. Thanks, Laura. This Ecosystems of Abuse, I want to welcome back to the show, Professor Amos Giora. Thank you for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me. Ecosystems of Abuse, you've certainly been on the show multiple times. You're a professor of criminal law up at the U in the law school there. Your work for years now, and we've talked about this off and on on the show, is this notion of what does it mean to be a bystander? What's morally responsible? What's ethically responsible? And what's legally responsible if you're a bystander? Um, the, the example I used at the, at the top of the hour was, of course, the Holocaust and those who stood by. But this new project here, you're sort of, I want to say, broadening out. And I understand this a phrase, the ecosystem of abuse, was, came from one of the students you're working with. It did. Uh, first of all, you're, you're right that there is a, a broadening. If the project which began 10 years ago looked at the bystander and the Holocaust. Today, it's the bystander and broader than that, the enabler with a particular emphasis on sexual assaults. And a spinoff of that, indeed, is sexual assaults of vulnerable children. And there are multiple spinoffs to the spinoff. 
uh, the the ecosystem is not. My, I don't even know what an ecosystem. I did not know what an ecosystem <laughs> is until one of my students said, "Giora ecosystem," <laughs> and that's why we came up with the term ecosystem. And it's really caught on because what is important is as bad as the perpetrator is, the the broader ecosystem that protects the perpetrator, protects the institution, and thereby harms the individual. That's what this project is all about. And the, the center of the center is a, is a terrible story of a 12-year-old boy who was murdered 25 years ago in West Virginia by his teacher principal who, over the course of decades, assaulted, abused children. And this teacher principal had been enabled by school board, school districts, school superintendents until he murders this little boy. Local law enforcement was quick to close the file. Uh, something doesn't sit right with the father. He reaches out to a cousin, reaches out to a cousin who makes their way to an extraordinary private detective in Erie, Pennsylvania, Dan Barber. Mr. Barber, for the next two years on off, lives in West Virginia, breaks the case, the perpetrator is in jail until the year, whatever, 5,000. Um, but if not for Mr. Barber, the teacher principal would have continued abusing boys, you know, forever. Um, and Mr. Barber broke the case, and then I'm, long story how I got to Mr. Barber, and he made an extraordinary decision last year. He bequeathed to me 15,000 pages of documents. Wow. And I have seven students, now six because one's graduated, working with me on a book, an article, podcast, uh, legislation. I mean, it really has totally taken off. And if one more spinoff, a, a, a project with a professor of uh, public health um, trying to do a predictive, very sophisticated analysis of sexual abuse of children in the Mountain West. Do you see a parallel with what's currently been in the news, this notion of folks in a religious confessional setting? We can think of the horrible case of the, the man raping his own child who told his bishop, and the bishop didn't do anything beyond tell the lawyer, and the lawyer said, you don't have to tell the police. I think any, because I'm looking primarily at actors and institutions. Okay. There's no stranger danger here. The, 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 the perp knows the victim and the victim knows the, the perp. Whether it's teachers or clergy, sports teams, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what's so distressing is I spend most of my days talking with sexual assault survivors mm. from around the world who reach out to me, not about the perpetrator, but about the ecosystem. And it just repeats itself that the, the victim thought, for instance, women, with their women today, they were children then, they thought they were, quote unquote, in an affair with the teacher, they thought they mm -hmm. loved the teacher, and then they realized that they were, you know, victim number 865, and then we, we can backtrack this, and I can show you who knew and who was complaining, and how the institution to protect itself goes into what I call institu institutional protection mode, and it's more important to protect the school, the institution, rather than protect the individual. This happens everywhere. We've seen it happen at the University of Utah. We've seen it happen in the LDS Church, in our own community. Those are um, some large institutions. And here you are at the S.J. Quinney College of Law saying, hey, institutions. But you have great support from S.J. Quinney. And in fact, to your mental health as well. This is some tough stuff to so go that's on. It. So it's very interesting. So when we began the project, 
last semester, there are seven women, four last semester, right? Four undergraduates, three law students, and the dean of students and the dean of the law school, I'm an extraordinary, made the decision to make available to the seven of them. Um, the, the law school has a counselor, mm -hmm. um, and just to reach out and say that they need help, they need to talk. Obviously, I don't know who reaches out. It's you know absolutely none of my business whatsoever. But indeed, the law school has made this extraordinary decision to make available to the women, including the non-law students, whenever they need to talk with someone. And you're right, the material, it's difficult the, the 15,000 pages of the murder of this little boy, Jeremy Bell, it's horrible. I mean, that's an understatement. You but you're going through all this data, this, this it's, to, it's to find the patterns, to find how, not just the perpetrator, but the enablers as a community or those who are invested in the power structure 100%. are reacting. And, and one of the students has created um, extraordinary flow charts. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, we can't do anything about the little boy, tragically. But Mr. Barber, the detective, when he turned over the 15,000 pages to me, uh, he's old school. I mean, I'm old. He's old school. And <laughs> Mr. Barber oh. said to me, the mandate is to make sure that, as much as possible, that whatever happened to this little boy will never happen again. And that's the point of this project. Yeah, systems and structures. You mentioned three students in, in law and four undergraduates. How did they come to the project? Are the undergraduates interested in law or sociology or now being they're therapist? interested in law? Okay, <laughs> good sales pitch. Uh, um, uh. I I've been teaching in addition to teaching in the law school. I also teach in the honors college. Okay, and I, I think I began six or seven years ago teaching a course on the bystander, um, and by now there have been five under uh, five honors college students who have worked with me. One of them came to college with the firm intention of going to medical school. Her father is a physician and medical school, medical school, medical school. She took the bystander course. She watched the victim impact statement of the girls from Michigan State. Mm -hmm. um, she came to class the next day and she said, well, you know, huh, medical school, mm, maybe law school. And today she's <laughs> in law school. And oh. the other four all took the bystander class. And they have, you know, made their way to this project. It's like undergraduate research, which is I, and cool I in and of itself. The seven of them, the three law students, the four, um, well, actually it's five um, undergraduates. The work they do, to use the word extraordinary, such an overused word. One, they're willing to engage with material that's terrible. I want to emphasize that. It's stark. It's graphic. Two, their, their uh, commitment to the project goes above and beyond anything I could have imagined. And I think that they will tell you, if they were here, that um, they understand, A, the little boy is dead, right, is murdered. And there's an opportunity here, unique, to collectively, individually, to try to ensure, exactly as Mr. Barber said, to make sure this doesn't happen again. Which involves, I mean, you're investigating systems and structures, obviously, institution systems and structures. So... The students and yourself, of course, you have to think very long term here if we're going to think about changing laws, changing cultural norms. This is huge. So listen, I'm 65 and a half. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I still can say it a half at my age, right? Uh -huh. um, I see this as a very, very long term project. And that, frankly, if I may say, it's the reason that I'm, in addition to working and researching and talking to people, I'm also out on the hustings raising money because this takes this, I mean, this requires resources. 
you know, I have students, one has to travel, one wants to do conferences. More, and the more you do, the more you do. And the more you do, the more you do. And I am an unabashed fundraiser. And I meet people and I look them right in the eye and I ask for their <laughs> hard-earned money. I tell them they have three options. One, to slam the door. Two, to say they'll think about it. And three, to say yes. And if they say whichever option they say, give me, I'll answer they give me. Also, if they're willing to you know, introduce me to others, and I, I see nothing wrong in, in, in aggressively, assertively, politely requesting mm -hmm. money. And we'll put a link in tonight's show notes because the university has ugive.app.utah, and donations can go there. And Through be the directed. law school, there's a yeah. link that I sent you. Got it. You got it. I'm sure we'll you do. We'll put it in there. And just to remind folks, we're talking with Professor Amos Giora from the S.J. Quinney College of Law. He's the author of The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander, and the Holocaust. And his new initiative broadens the notion of the bystander and enablers into an ecosystem of abuse initiative. And you have a lot of students working for you, um, dedicated to researching this project, but they're not just taking your direction. They've got some ideas of their own. I'm all about student uh, autonomy, and I want them to feel comfortable throwing out ideas. And sometimes I say yes, sometimes I say no. And um, I think that giving students the opportunity to be creative in their own right and to suggest, you know, we're writing an article, complicated article, they have an idea of maybe what I'm writing is incorrect. They have better ideas, different ideas. It's all about challenging one another, and the idea really exactly, is just, as the two of you are saying, is to have change. And I, you know, there's no pride of authorship. I don't really don't care who hits the home run as long as we hit the home run. Not all faculty, based on my experience, think that way. You know, many faculty are sure that, you know, blank, blank, they're correct. And, you know, they want to just fill the kids' heads with knowledge. Um, this is not what you're about, clearly. No, and I, and I so I, I can only speak as to myself. Don't yeah. forget that I served for 20 years in the Israel Defense Forces where I was the commander, right? There's no democracy. There was a democracy. I was the one vote. There was a vote. Um, <laughs> but I there also enabled people under me, if they have ideas, to come forward with ideas, with the understanding that at the end of the day— It's your uh, vote. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the voter. Here— I'm totally open to ideas with the understanding at the end of the day on the article or the book, it says, you know, Amos Giora, which means that I bear um, all responsibility if there are mistakes. Yeah. I wonder, we're talking about enablers and bystanders. Do you see a difference between those two groups? Someone yes, Someone who's 100%. a bystander and an enabler? The, the bystander is physically present. Okay. The enabler is the, is the, the administrator, the CEO, the coach, the, the, the faith leader who's not present, but is, is told and or knows of and the ill. Looks the other way, That's so to exactly speak. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. That seems to me perhaps a bigger, more insidious problem than the bystander. It's very interesting you put it that way. I think the bystanders, you walk down Main Street and somebody falls, and you decide to walk on. Okay, you're a bystander. You're in the moment. Uh -huh. The enabler is a far more strategic in that way. Uh, they're more nefarious. I mean, Jeremy Bell, the boy who was murdered, never, ever, ever should have been murdered because school boards, districts, knew along the course of this 30 years of the predator's um, conduct that he could have been stopped. And when he murders that little boy, it never should have, that, they never should have met. And they only met because of the enablers. Well, so how do you want what you're learning in the initiative to translate to institutions because... 
like you said, institutions, their first instinct is to protect, to huddle. I'm all about, so I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a moralist. I'm just a law professor. I'm all, all about <laughs> I'm all about criminalizing. Okay, so. Legislation. Okay, so one of your students is working on legal research on the bystander and enabler liability. Another on the criminal intent of bystanders and enablers. Explain the difference. Sure. So the bystander, there is no intent. I mean, there's, it's, it's viewed as in the moment. The enabler, when somebody comes to the coach and says player A or whomever is doing such and such, and you make the decision to ignore it, there's an intent there. Um, you know, mea culpa, I testified in Australia two years ago, and I argued there that the enablers are committing a crime of omission. I've come to the conclusion, mea culpa, I was wrong. It's a crime of commission because I have made the conscious decision not to do something. And that's a co, that's a co-mission, I've decided. In terms of legislation, so Representative Brian King, you I know, right? So Brian, who is my legislator, I have no heroes. If I had heroes, King would be a, a hero. He ran with the bystander bill, I think four times. It was passed last year, um, co-sponsored by Senator Bramble, signed by Governor Cox. Brian is introducing legislation this time, which is related to the enabler without using the word enabler, and beginning the process of expanding what you said earlier, expanding the legislative journey there is no jurisdiction in the world that criminalizes the enabler, and I'm honored that Representative King is, is beginning mm. that process. How long it will take? You know, what's the old expression? I ain't going anywhere. Yeah, I wonder about the I wonder about the flip side of this. We've seen I want to mention Texas, where you know you can be a bystander and sue over abortion issues. It's sort of a, the flip side of the issue, if you will. You know, I know a woman who's going to go mm. get an abortion X, Y, Z, and you can sue and be engaged in a bystander in a very different way, I think, than what you're talking about. So what I'm focusing on, I think, as both of you know, is the role of the institution or protecting the institution, which really is about institutional complicity. And, you know, you began with the Holocaust and we could yeah. sit here, you know, forever. But in the context of, of contemporary society, whether here in America or elsewhere, what's so devastating to the survivors who reach out to me throughout the day is when you unpack what happened to them, they come to the realization that what happened to them never should have happened to them because the perpetrator was a repeat performer, performer enabled by the institution that was protecting the institution. And that's why, again, saying I've yet to interview anyone who was assaulted in the context of quote-unquote stranger danger, they all knew their perpetrator, and the perpetrator knew, obviously, the victim, yeah. but the perpetrator also knew that the institution would protect them. Well, Utah has a mandatory reporting law requiring folks to report the known abuse of kids and vulnerable adults, and 11 states, including Utah, 28 countries have passed bills criminalizing bystander right. inaction in some way. But you say there is no jurisdiction in the world that has criminalized the enabler. That's right. And that's the next step. That's the next step. And I think that that's the, you know what, Nick, what you said, it's, it's, the, it's hard because, I mean, 12 states not a bystander in 28 yeah. countries. The enabler for some people is such a amorphous concept because he's not, he or she, they're not there. But that, from my perspective, in no way frees them of, of obligation, duty, and liability. Well, you think of, the, think of the Catholic Church and the cardinal who just moves the priest or 
you I, I was thinking of, of the, the doctor from Michigan and all the, the, the athletes. So there are doctors from Michigan. Okay. There's Larry Nasser from Michigan State uh-huh. who will spend the rest of his life in jail. And there's now a doctor at the University of Michigan who over the course of 50 years assaulted students and student athletes. And I'm writing, co-writing a book with one of the 1,000 plaintiffs from the University of Michigan who was a football player at Michigan, John Vaughn. Vaughn was uh, assaulted, raped 40 to 45 times while playing at Michigan. Because well, you had to go see the doctor. And if you had a sprained ankle, he had to, you know, digitally penetrate you. And there we, we can show you who the enablers were. In the same way with Jeremy Bell, I can step by step yeah. by step show you who the enablers are. I mean, I think, of, I think of University of Michigan and maybe Michigan State to some degree. You see, the, you see the ripples, you know, the president serves two years and then they need a new president. It's like no one can quite get a handle on actually doing anything about it. So the board just, well, we'll get a new president. Um, it, it's not really dealing with the enablers in the it least. It is not. It's, so full disclosure, my late father was a professor at the University of Michigan Medical School. Okay. Um, and I have no doubt if my late father knew what was going on at Michigan when he was at Michigan, He'd be rolling over in his grave. Um, and you're right. Decision makers, powerful decision makers, when confronted, take, quote, unquote, the easy route, which is either to, you know, deny it, turn their head, because there are far larger interests at stake here. I mean, one of them is obviously money. Uh, money's big. Big-time sports. Especially big-time sports, sports. Especially college sports. Huge. I was, something else that thinking about chatting with you tonight reminded me of the genocide in Rwanda when Clinton was president. And there was some thought that, you know, Clinton and people in his administration knew the genocide was happening, but it was just so big and so huge that they couldn't really wrap their mind around believing so it. So I actually, I read huh. an interview or heard an interview with, with uh, former President Clinton in which he said that the single re- greatest regret of his presidency, other than the obvious, um, <laughs> was Rwanda. I have a question uh. for you, Professor, about the enabler. We're talking about in the context, context of institutions, but institutions are made up of individuals. And like you said, the easy decision is to retire someone out or quietly shuffle them away. What is it about us as a society globally, not just in America, that um, it is so hard for us to look at this and then say, nope, it's going to stop here. We're going to do something about it. It's because we feel that we are retroactively complicit once we find out, like, how did I not know this horrible thing was going on? Do you sense what I'm getting at? I absolutely understand what you're getting at. And the best answer I can give you, which is not a very articulate or very thoughtful answer. No swearing? No, not at all. (laughs) I met with a professor of psychology in Israel, and I think he agreed to meet with me because of my, my dad. And in many ways, I asked him what you just asked me. And he said, you know, I think your father, who then was deceased, he said, if your father knew what I was going to tell the son of, right, he would be really angry, but here's the truth. You're literally, he tells me, Mm -hmm. he's a very distinguished professor of psychology, this gentleman. He said, you're literally the first person to ask these questions. And I said, but that can't be. There are people who've written about bystanders, but the larger institutional questions from a legal perspective, you know, for reasons I can't explain to you, um, are questions that to date have gone unasked. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. You you could you could make a case that a professor who wanted to research that, gee, just can't get funding, 
or doesn't get tenure for doing it. I mean, there could be institutional reasons but behind. I, the, the, yeah, the, the, interesting. The, 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 there's been a lot written about bystanders. Uh -huh. There's very little written about enablers, and there's been literally very little written about the bystanders and enablers from the perspective of the law. Yeah. Well, Do there's the cost of speaking out, right? Uh, not only as a victim, but as someone who's saying, hey, institution, we need to look at this. Sure. And being that first one to step forward. Well, you know, people are concerned about being whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. But also some institutional actors have a loyalty to the institution. You know, go green, go white. Hmm. Some of the, this I know from the women who I were in the Olympics who I interviewed, the enablers, um, I know this will irritate you, Larry, I know. Some of the women enablers yes, yes. are extremely jealous of the women athletes. Uh, they dislike them. They're jealous mm. of them, and they, you know, turn their back on them. They're the and, ones that are supposed to protect them. And if you walk through uh, the Nasser case step by step, I can show you exactly when the victims or the survivors came to those who should be protecting them, who absolutely made the conscious decision to protect Larry Nasser. And Michigan State. Do you, do you think the Me Too movement has shifted the discussion? I think the Me Too movement has done a, a wonderful job of, of bringing us to the headlines. I think. Okay. I mean, ask Harvey Weinstein how that worked out. He's for, on right? appeal. Or, right, or, or Jeffrey Epstein, or those others. But hang on. And Harvey Weinstein is obviously a god awful human being, and one hopes he spends the rest of his life exactly where he needs to be. But that's just skimming the surface. It's skimming the surface of of that's just one company, one institution, one. It's, it's yeah. I said somewhere, I know there's COVID, which is an epidemic. The real epidemic in society today is this: mm. the enabling and, and the sexual assaults. The sexual assaults and the bystander. All right. So again, the ecosystem of abuse initiative now underway through the auspices of the S.J. Quinney College of Law. Folks can get involved, I'm guessing, as well as donate. You can, they can, I, here's the way it works. People email me all day long or all night long, I guess that depends <laughs> how you look at it. Um, I will, as you know, I will talk to anyone on this stuff. You can put my email in. On the, I'll put it in the show notes. Put it in the show notes. Um, put the link to the Bicenter Initiative, the link to the donation page, and I will say thank you to one and all. There you go. Pretty cool book to come though what's it going to be called when it's going to publish so there there's the book with there's John at least three books in the works it sounds like the book on the jeremy bell case yeah. um i think will be called something like the ecosystem we'll work the word mm. ecosystem in there in the interim there's a there's a law review article we you know armies of enablers came out two years ago um the book about bell ecosystem somewhere Jeremy's name will be there. Mm -hmm. um, ecosystem will be in there. And you'll come back when that's out? Absolutely. Oh, I would love to read that when Thank it's you. out. Love to have your Actually, students. Actually, you don't want to read too. it because it's awful. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it to is. have your students join you too next time. I'm sorry? Love to have your students join you next time. I'd be and delighted. Share some of their work. And, I think and that's a great idea to bring them. them. Because they're going to carry it forward. Like you said, you're what, 62 and a half? 65 and a half. But I think, <laughs> I think having the students part on your show. Um, is a wonderful idea. They mm -hmm. deserve all the credit in the world. We do have just a few minutes, so can I ask you about your, your holiday break and how things are back in Israel with the uh, government? Do I have to say his name? Sure. <laughs> um, so, indeed, I was home in Israel. Netanyahu was the prime minister again. And I've 
I've said in other places, including in a talk this past week at the Kolami, and I speak now, I take off my, uh, my enabling hat, I put on my Israeli hat. Um, the new government of Israel is a racist, fascist, homophobic government, and people of my tribe uh, are deeply distressed. There are demonstrations, rallies constantly. Um, I'm optimistic because I don't believe this government can, is sustainable. Mm. But it is, um, what's the expression, game on. Um, it's awful. The last four governments, if I'm counting correctly, haven't been very successful but in Israel. So, uh, you know, it could bring me here for hours. Um, we've had, I don't know how many elections over the past years, but this is the first time we've had a government that is openly, from my perspective, racist, fascist, and homophobic. Professor Amos Giora, thanks for giving us your time. Ecosystem of Abuse. We'll put all of the links in the show notes, thank Nick you. Burns. Always a pleasure to chat thanks with for having you, me. so thank you. And I like this notion of coming back, and we'll chat with the students who are engaged in this work with you. Pretty amazing. This is Radioactive. Tomorrow, we'll start off another semester of Salt Lake Community College journalism students. They'll take over the mic on Thursdays. That's pretty exciting, pretty exciting to me, certainly. Plus, tomorrow on the show, Downwind, which is a must-see documentary that's going to premiere at Slamdance about nuclear fallout, specifically across Utah. Fridays, of course, Laura Punkrock Farmer will be here with yeah. you, as always. He's on the road at the Utah Farm and Food Conference, so I'll be holding down the, the desk here myself, and we'll have live, fresh homegrown music from Sal Duro. Nick Burns, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Next up is Democracy Now! Thanks for tuning in. I'm Nick Burns. KRCL, Salt Lake City. Hi, I'm Brian Kelm. Since March of 1980, I've been bringing you the best in this great American musical art form we call the blues every Monday night at 8 on the Red, White, and Blues program. Tune in for artists like the Kings, Phoebe, Freddie, and Albert, and Albert Collins to Etta Homesick or Elmore James, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of blues, old and new. That's Red, White, and Blues every Monday night at 8. Only on 90.9 FM, KRCL.